we are following the journey of the man considered by Christians to be the father of faith. This man is named Abram, and you may know him by what his name will later be changed to, which is Abraham. And as we follow his story through the book of Genesis, we see him face one test after another in the area of faith, the area of trusting God. And just as is true in your life and mine, every day the Lord will find a new way to ask us the question, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And the way we build faith in our lives is by learning to answer yes over and over again, day after day. Faith is the currency of the kingdom of God. And based on the priority that God places on developing faith in the life of the believer, we can safely assume it's going to have a profound effect on what we do for the Lord after our earthly lives are over. We don't know how it's going to work, but we know that faith is going to be a big deal with regards to what the Lord will trust us with as we work and partner with him throughout eternity. And so we can learn much from Abram's journey of faith as we see our own journeys of faith reflected in his struggles and in his victories as well. He will do well in some tests, he will do not so well in other tests, but all along the way, He's going to be blessed by God. God is going to be patient with him. And overall, Abram is going to grow tremendously over the course of his life in the area of faith. In last week's study, we saw Abram receive an invitation from God to make a covenant with him, a binding agreement that God would take care of Abram and keep his promises to him, except God ended up knocking Abram out and making the covenant agreement without him. It was God's way of letting Abram know that he was the one who was going to keep this covenant. He was going to provide everything needed for it. Abram didn't need to do anything except believe and receive God's promises and work in his life. This week, Abram is going to be tested with holding on to one of God's promises even after a significant amount of time has passed. Will Abram be able to keep the faith even when it seems like nothing is happening? It's a question and a test that every believer has faced and many of us may be facing right now. So let's tune in, let's really open our hearts to the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate anything in the text today that we might need to be especially reminded of. So let's jump in, verse one. Chapter 15, Genesis chapter 16, I'm sorry. Verse one, Genesis chapter 16, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. As we learned all the way back when we first met Abram, Sarai was barren. She couldn't have any children. And if you've been with us as we've journeyed along with Abram through these last few chapters in the book of Genesis, then you'll recall that God gave Abram the promise that he would be the father of a multitude, literally an entire nation of people who would go on to become the Israelites. But at this point, Abram is 86, Sarai is 76. It's been over a decade since God first promised to make him the father of a nation and nothing has happened. His name is Abram, it means exalted father, and so he has to walk around with that name and no kids. That name and no kids. It would be like being a a tiny, skinny, 
rail of a man and having a name that means conqueror of many men. Or, or being an extremely large man and having the name that means swift as a cheetah or something like that. So he's got to walk around with the name Exalted Father and he has no kids and he's 86. And that's the setup. Things are looking pretty bleak in the kids department. Abram and Sarai have a promise from God, but it doesn't seem to be happening. And this chapter is going to deal with how they deal with that dilemma. We go on and it says, and she, Sarai, had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. You'll recall that this maidservant, Hagar, was given to Abram and Sarai by Pharaoh when they were down in Egypt and Sarai had been taken into Pharaoh's palace. The whole situation there came about because Abram had failed a faith test. God had told him to go into Canaan, but a famine struck the land, and instead of seeking the Lord as to what to do, Abram left the land God had called him to and headed down to Egypt. His wife Sarai was so beautiful, he was terrified that he was going to be killed by some Egyptian who wanted to steal his wife. So he had his wife lie about the nature of their relationship and say that they were brother and sister instead. That led to Pharaoh thinking Abram's wife was available. He took Sarai into his palace and then he got supernaturally ill before they could consummate their relationship. And the end result was Pharaoh kicking them out of Egypt along with all kinds of stuff he had given Abram as a dowry when he thought that she was Abram's sister. And one of the things that Pharaoh had given them was a maidservant for Sarai named Hagar. Verse two, so Sarai said to Abram, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. And we can tell from this that Sarai is bitter. She believes it's God's fault she doesn't have any kids yet. She's not trusting God, she's bitter toward God. And here's why that attitude gets us into trouble. When you and I get bitter against God, we begin to say, God hasn't done for me what he should. We very quickly use that bitterness to justify sinning. That's the immediate leap we make. We'll say, well, what choice do I have? I've tried things God's way and it hasn't worked out. So I'm completely justified in trying a different approach. What choice do I have? If God really loved me, I would have what I want by now. And like Sarai, it's very easy for us to let our bitterness justify sinning. And here comes Sarai's sinful solution, which she feels is totally justified because she's been waiting for years and nothing's happened. So she says to Abram, please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. So Sarai decides that the quickest way to get this children issue moving is to use a tactic that was culturally accepted at the time. If a woman could not have children herself, she could give one of her handmaidens to her husband as sort of like a, a lesser wife, and then she and her husband could claim any children that were produced as their own children. Now the issue was that the Lord had said that Abram and Sarai would have a child. And Sarai is now saying, well, Abram, our culture has a practice that will solve this dilemma. You sleep with Hagar and then she can produce our son, the son of promise who will ultimately lead to a whole multitude, a whole nation. And so just make a note of this. We're not going to get too deep into this, but just something that's interesting, worth making a note of, is that Sarai does something to solve her problem that our society has done as well. She separates marriage, sex, and children. 
She separates all three of those things. God's plan, God's word, God's design is that all three would be unified together. That marriage would lead to sex, which would lead to children. And God's design, it all takes place within the safety of the family unit. And Satan hates God. Satan hates God's designs, which is why Satan hates God's design for families. So what Satan does is he says, those three things don't need to be connected in any way. In fact, they're completely separate issues. You don't need to be married to have sex or to have children. And Sarai buys into that idea all the way back in Genesis chapter 16. She says, there's things I want right now that I can't get by doing it God's way. So I'll do it my way instead. And I feel perfectly justified in doing that. Well, Abram, in the least surprising reaction recorded in the entire Bible, says, well, if you think it's what's best for the family that I sleep with this much younger woman, I am nothing if not a team player. And so we read, and Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. We'll pause here to talk about this for a little bit before we move into the back half of the story today. The setup will be familiar to anyone who has walked with the Lord for more than a few years. You have a promise from God, you have a promise in his word, and it just doesn't seem to be happening. And as time passes, you find yourself in the place where the Holy Spirit inside of you is saying, trust the Lord. And your flesh, the enemy, is crying out, God has forgotten you. And you've got to make a a choice between trusting God and staying in the place of faith or taking matters into your own hands. And if you're a believer, I won't ask if you've been there because I know you've been there. And perhaps your first reaction was, I can't believe after everything the Lord has done in his life, I can't believe that Abram won't just trust God. And then perhaps you very quickly let that thought go as you realize the obvious truth that, like me, you've also made some really dumb decisions long after you became a believer. Long after you became a believer. Perhaps like me, you've also failed to seek the Lord at some times when, looking back, it was really obvious that you should have done that. Maybe you've also been impatient and hasty and gotten yourself into a bad situation when you should have just waited on the Lord. And part of the encouragement of Abram's life and faith journey is that God doesn't give up on him, ever. And God won't give up on you or me or any one of his kids. And that should encourage us. But we should also take heed. We should also take warning from Abram's failures, lest any of us think that just because we've accumulated some years of following the Lord, we are somehow immune from doing something staggeringly stupid. When we disconnect from the Lord, when we stop asking for and operating in his wisdom and start saying, you know what, I've been walking with the Lord long enough, I can just trust my own judgment now. When we start doing that, it is incredible how quickly we can begin to make bad decisions. So as we talk about this, just stay open to what the Holy Spirit wants to illuminate in your life, even though you're gonna be very tempted to only think about other people during this message. 
Make sure that you allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate your life as well. Back in verse two, we heard a bitter Sarai say to Abram, see now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. And while we find a whole lot of blaming God happening in this situation, we'll find that there's not a whole lot of seeking God going on in this situation. In fact, nobody will pray in this chapter, not once. And every now and then I'll encounter a non-believer who's, who's mad at God because of how things have happened in their life. And, and I always share something along these lines. I'll always say, well, let me make sure I understand what you're saying correctly. You have no interest in a relationship with God. You have no interest in how he wants you to live. You have no interest in reading his message to you in the Bible. God has no impact whatsoever on how you choose to live your life. But when things go wrong, it's his fault. And usually they understand the point very quickly. But as believers, we find that we can do the exact same thing. Well, I'm mad at God that this is happening in my life. Have you prayed about it? No. Have you fasted about it? No. Did you study the word to see what answers might be found in it? No. But you're sure this is God's fault and that he doesn't love you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've been struck recently by the incredible number of times that the Bible counsels us to wait on the Lord, to wait on the Lord. And you know how I know we're not good at following that advice? Because I never see that on fridge magnets. I never see that on Christian memes. I never see that on Christian coffee mugs. Nobody is interested in that word from the Lord, right? Nobody wants to hear the Lord's word for you is wait. We all want to hear conquer, go forward in faith. The Lord is with you. Be brave, be, wait. Nobody wants to hear wait. When we ask God a question, we want to hear yes or no or do this or do that. But the one word we don't even usually consider as a possibility is that the Lord might say wait because we want to take action. And we don't view waiting on the Lord as an action, but it is. Seeking the Lord is taking action. Praying is taking action. Getting into the word is taking action. Praising God is taking action. Listening and being still before the Lord is taking action. So make a note of this. Waiting on the Lord is taking action. Waiting on the Lord is taking action. And if you're struggling with waiting on the Lord, let me just commend to you a study on the word wait in the book of Psalms. Just begin to put it into BibleGateway.com or something and begin to look at all the Psalms where it talks about waiting on the Lord and then read those verses and the verses around them so that you can get the context and you're gonna be tremendously encouraged and astounded by how often that exhortation shows up in the book of Psalms. Here's just a few examples. They're on your outlines too. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and he heard my cry. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits and in his word do I hope. Waiting on the Lord is not doing nothing. If time has simply been passing, it doesn't mean that you've automatically been waiting on the Lord though. Don't think that just because you've been doing nothing and time has been passing that you've actually been waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord, as we said, is an action. 
It means prayer. It means getting into the word. It means praising God even when you're in that difficult place. It means creating space and time to hear his voice. It's an action. You may have been waiting for something in your life, but let me ask you honestly, have you been waiting on the Lord? Have you been waiting on the Lord? Abram and Sarai did not wait on the Lord. They became impatient and fearful and started having some of the thoughts that we often have in those situations. Thoughts like, maybe I'm supposed to help God in this situation. I mean, as we all know, the word says God helps those who help themselves. Except the word doesn't say that anywhere, ever. It's a complete myth. But we buy into the idea of maybe God's waiting for me to help him out a little bit. And that's a thought we can have sometimes without even being mad at God. We're not mad at God. We simply fuse our faith with one of the world's favorite philosophies. It can sound a bit different depending on the source, but but the gist of the philosophy I'm talking about is this. The most important thing is each person's individual happiness, their personal happiness. That is the most important thing. This is the driving philosophy of our whole world right now. What's most important is your personal happiness. In other words, the most important thing you can do, the greatest good, is for you to do what makes you happy in life. And sometimes we as Christians will fuse this philosophy with our faith and we'll disobey the Lord using this as a justification. We'll say, God wants me to be happy, right? That's why I need to do this. I need to do this. God understands. In fact, he's on board with me doing this because he wants me to be happy. I'm practically fulfilling the will of the Lord by doing this because God wants me to be happy. And the truth is, as you may know, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that God's greatest goal for your life is your happiness. The only place you can find that that idea is outside of the Bible, in the world. The Bible and the Lord never speak about happiness being the most important thing. God speaks about our good a whole lot. He speaks about doing what is most beneficial for us a whole lot, the greatest good for us. Happiness is a temporary emotion, and if you solely pursue happiness, you will find that it is not actually connected to meaning. It's not connected to fulfillment. It's not connected to peace the way that the world thinks it is. Our world thinks that if you get happiness, you get peace, fulfillment, meaning, all of that along with it, and that's just not true. God is interested in what is best for us, eternally, presently, and totally. He's interested in our greatest good, and very often that doesn't line up with what makes us happy in the moment. And here's something that's good to remember. If you're wondering, well, I wonder if this is the world's philosophy or this is the Holy Spirit speaking to me. It's very simple. God will never have a plan for you to fulfill that involves you sinning, ever. It is never the Lord's plan that you get something he has for you by sinning. It's never his plan that you would solve the issue of loneliness or a desire to be married by disobeying the Lord and going off with a non-believer. It's never the Lord's plan that sin is the solution to a need you have. Waiting is hard. But what waiting does is it reveals what we truly believe about God. One of the most important things to never forget about the nature of God, make a note of this, 
is that God has the means to fulfill every promise he makes. God has the means to fulfill every promise he makes. Let that sink in. God has the means to fulfill every promise he makes. God has never made a promise and then had to panic that he may have promised too much. He's never gotten caught up in the emotion of the moment. He didn't promise Abram an entire nation and massive land area and then wake up the next morning and go, oh man, what am I going to do? I got caught up in the emotions of the moment. I was just having a great time with my friend Abram. You know, we were hanging out around the campfire and it was a starry sky and I just wanted to, to let him know how much I cared about him. So I, I just kind of impulsively promised him more offspring than all the stars he could see in the sky and, and, and now I have no idea how I'm gonna back that up. That didn't happen. It's never happened. God has never found himself in a situation where he overpromised and underdelivered. ever. It's always the other way around. And God did not fill the Bible with promises for you and I that he can't keep. He's not up in heaven saying, angels, you gotta help me out. You know, I put in my word, it sounded catchy at the time, you know, that I'll cause all things to work together for good for, for those who love me, but I hadn't met Jeff when I said that. And if I had known how hard he was going to make it for me to, to keep that promise, I never would have made that promise. God knew it all. He's seen it all. He's planned for it all. And knowing it all, then he promised. He doesn't just have the means. He's already seen himself keeping the promise. And he has the means to keep every promise he makes to you and I. Every promise. One of the key questions, the key investigation that I think we have to do in this chapter is asking the question, why did the man of God, the man of God, the father of faith, Abram, get on board with such a sinful and terrible idea? Why, why did he do it? We know that fear was at least a factor. The fear of, of missing out, not having any offspring at all, having to leave everything he had accumulated to his servant. But it's also pretty obvious that Abram went along with Sarai's plan because, make a note of this, Let's see if we can relate here. The idea was attractive to Abram's sinful desires. Real simple. The plan was incredibly attractive to Abram's sinful desires. He was obviously drawn to the idea of having his wife's permission to have sex with a much younger woman. And we might think like, well... You know, I wouldn't do that. My wife would never go for that. But listen, we can also fall prey to following bad advice and easily run with a bad idea. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves being blinded by our sinful desires and saying things like, you know, I hear the equivalent of this and people don't even realize they're saying it. I love that your advice lines up exactly with what I most feel like doing right now. I love that. It must be from the Lord. That's how I knew what they were saying was true. It resonated with my heart. You ever hear that one? It resonated with my heart. What's the problem with that? Well, what does the Bible say about the human heart? It is deceitful above all else. Desperately wicked. Who can know it? It resonated with my heart. Yeah, I know. That's the problem. It resonated with your heart. It felt right, which almost indefinitely means it's wrong, right? Because if you're being led by your heart, 
you're inevitably going to end up in sin. Yeah. How did you know that God was speaking to you? Oh, because they said exactly what I wanted to hear and do. That's how I knew. Have you noticed that we rarely get super excited when a plan appeals to our self-control? We've never said that. Oh, oh man, sorry. I just, I got so excited there for a moment because this is going to require a lot of self-control. And that just blesses me. I've never heard anyone say that. I've never said it once. I've never heard anyone say, oh, man, man, God's in that. You know how I know? Because that's going to require some serious patience. Bless God. I'm fired up about that. Never, never happened. We get excited when a plan appeals to our flesh, to our sinful desires. That's when we go, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. Now, Abram also likely went along with this terrible idea because you can write this down. The idea came from a respected source that he cared about. It came from Sarai. The idea came from a respected source that he cared about. And I see people make this mistake all the time, and and I do too, where without realizing it, we elevate someone's opinion and someone's advice above the word of God, above the word of God. And here's how it happens. Often we're going to another believer, might be a very mature or seasoned believer, And we ask them, well, what do you think? And if you're the person being asked that question, it's very easy to immediately go with your own judgment rather than stopping to ask yourself in your mind, wait a minute, what does the word say? And we think because this is a good person, this is a good woman, a godly man, a godly woman, I know there in the word, this advice must be good. But the question we have to ask them is not what do you think? The right question to ask is, What does the word say about this? Can you counsel me on what the word says about this? Do you know what the Lord says about this situation? Because the truth is, we're not asking them because we really want their opinion. We want the Lord's opinion. And we're thinking they can help us discover what that is. Because the truth is, nobody's opinion is more important or valuable than God's as recorded in his word. And it's very easy as a believer, even as a mature believer, to ask someone their opinion and take it as though it's the gospel when it's not. And it's very easy to give an opinion without stopping to ask the question, what does the word of God actually say? And in this situation, Abram was thinking, my my wife's a godly woman. Remember how she walked with the Lord and trusted God in that whole situation in Egypt when I was making a mess of everything? This, This is coming from a respected source. So I don't really need to double check this. Sarai is legit. I'm sure this is of the Lord. The truth is that we either get our wisdom from the world or from the word. Those are the only two types there is. There's worldly wisdom and there's wordly wisdom. And if your wisdom isn't coming from the word, if the person you're asking advice from isn't getting their wisdom from the word, then it's coming from the world. It's just that simple. So how did Abram end up in this mess? Simply put, write this down. Big decisions without big prayers lead to big problems. Big decisions without big prayers lead to big problems. When a famine hit the land that God had called Abram to live in, he didn't pray. He just moved his whole family down to Egypt. He's like, no need to pray on this one. They got food down there, let's go. But that's where they ended up picking up Hagar. And when Sarai had the idea of Abram marrying and sleeping with Hagar to have a child, they didn't pray then either. These were two huge decisions where God was not a part of their decision-making process. 
The lesson there is that big decisions without big prayers lead to big problems. Another reason Abram ended up in this situation is because, make a note of this, when we're freed from Egypt, we're supposed to leave some things behind. I'll explain this in a second. When we're freed from Egypt, we're supposed to leave some things behind. We've talked about this before. Egypt is used in the scriptures over and over again as a picture, as a type of the world. The system of living that is godless and ultimately under the rule of Satan. And when we become believers, sticking with that type, with that imagery, we are brought out of, we are freed from slavery in Egypt, slavery to the world, so to speak. And when God frees you from that death sentence, when God calls you out of the world and into his family, there are some things that he wants you to leave behind in Egypt. It might be a coping mechanism. Maybe there was some type of sinful activity or or indulgence that you had as a way of coping with life, but now that God has freed you from the world, he says, now you're to get your peace from me, your joy from me, your confidence, your reassurance from me, and you need to leave that coping mechanism behind in Egypt. It might be a pattern of thinking. It might be a bad habit. It might even be a relationship. It's going to be something that is not meant to be an option for any believer. And some of those things, the Lord says, you don't even need to bring that with you. If you're stepping out of Egypt into new life with me, you're going to leave that behind. And the truth is that Abram and Sarai should have left Hagar behind in Egypt. But they brought her with them. And because she was tagging along, She was there in the background providing this option to sin instead of trust God. The option to do things their way instead of God's way. And when we bring something with us that we should have left behind in Egypt, it's always hanging around as an option. And sooner or later we're going to exercise that option. The solution is is no half measures. The solution is saying I've been freed from Egypt And I'm not really planning on keeping any souvenirs around from my time as a slave there because I'd rather forget about it. And so the question is that I just throw out there is, is is there something from your time in Egypt before you were truly walking with the Lord that you've maybe cut back on, but you know that the Lord wants you to cut it out completely? You brought it with you out of Egypt, but the Lord would say, I I wanted you to leave that there and not have it with you at all. And then finally, this plan also seemed so appealing because, write this down, expedience is more attractive than obedience. Expedience is more attractive than obedience. Abram and Sarai said, Lord, we'll wait on your promise. Okay, that's long enough. We got to do something. And instead of trusting God, they went with a quicker solution and they said, this is socially acceptable in the world we live in today, but it wasn't God's solution. Do you know, this is an interesting fact, even in the original language, there are no commands in the Bible that are followed by anything like the words, unless there's a quicker way to do it. There's no command in the Bible that is followed by, unless there's an easier way to do it. McDonald's exists solely because as an entire society, we are willing to sacrifice that which is good for that which is available right now. 
That's the entire model of McDonald's and every other fast food, right? Yeah, it's not that good, but it's here right now. Sold. We're naturally drawn to expedience over obedience. Well, back to our story. Hagar becomes pregnant. And so this is the stage of sin. This is the stage of the terrible plan where we actually think, see, there's nothing to worry about. Everything is working out perfectly. But in verse four we read, and when she, that's Hagar, saw that she had conceived, her mistress, that's Sarai, became despised in her eyes. So something happens after Hagar realizes she's pregnant. She begins to become prideful and arrogant about the fact that she's the one carrying Abram's child, the supposed son of promise. And so she begins to sort of rub Sarai's nose in it. Verse five, then Sarai said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. You shouldn't have let this happen, Abram. Sure, it was my plan, but you should have known better than to listen to me. You should have stopped this. Don't you have any backbone at all? It's pretty classic. Sigmund Freud said at at the end of his his practice and writings, he said, "I, I only have one question about woman. What do you want? That was, that was his only question. You guys know the other classic joke that God, God comes to a, a man and he says, I'll give you anything you want. Anything you want in the world. And, and, and the man says, well, you know, I, I live on the West Coast and um, I love Hawaii. It's beautiful. And I can't help thinking how great it would be if I could just drive to Hawaii. So Lord, if you would just build a giant bridge over to Hawaii and then relatively affordably I could drive over there whenever I want to. God says, that's a big ask. I mean, the issue is it's not that I can't do it. It's just a little little over the top, don't you think? I mean, the greatest feat of engineering anybody's ever done. The Lord says, well, is there anything else? You know, maybe maybe a a little more unspectacular that won't draw as much attention. And the man says, well, I have always wanted to know I've always wanted to understand my wife. And the Lord says, you want two lanes or four? So, (laughs) classic. So this goes all the way back, all the way back to Genesis 16. This thing was Sarai's idea, and now she's saying, Abram, how could you let this happen? Verse six, so Abram says to Sarai, indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do, Do to her as you please. So he literally doesn't deal with anything doesn't deal with the sin or confront his sin. He just says, That's whatever, you, you do whatever you want with Hagar. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. So Sarai becomes literally abusive toward Hagar. We don't know in what way or to what degree, but we know it was serious enough that, that Hagar couldn't deal with it anymore. And so she ran away, kidnapping the future child in the process. Verse seven, now, The angel of the Lord, underline the angel of the Lord. Whenever you see the title, the angel of the Lord, singular, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's generally a reference to Jesus. It's a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord does things in scripture that angels don't do, like receive worship from people. If if it's just a regular angel in, in the scriptures, if someone bows down to them or something, they'll say, get up. 
If someone says, let me make a sacrifice to you or let me worship you, they'll say, get up, don't do that because they're just an angel and that worship belongs to God and it would be blasphemous for them to receive it. But the angel of the Lord appears and people talk to him as though he's God. They talk about him as though he's God. They worship him and he receives it. It's very, very different because God does receive praise. And several times in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is identified with God. He's he's identified as being part of God, Yahweh, but yet he's also described as being distinct from Yahweh, which is very interesting because all the way back in the Old Testament, how would you solve that problem? How would you solve that dichotomy? And the answer is the doctrine of the Trinity. It's all the way back in the Old Testament as you study the angel of the Lord. So it says, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said to her, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. So apparently God doesn't recognize Abram and Hagar's marriage because he doesn't say return to Abram, your husband. He addresses her as Hagar, Sarai's maid, and instructs her to return to your mistress. Verse 10, then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. Ishmael means God will hear. He shall be a wild man. Just a fun side point here. The literal translation of the term wild man, and I swear I'm telling the truth here, it's in the uh, King James actually. The literal translation is wild ass man, which I never thought I'd get to say in church, but it's what the Bible says, so I'm just going to do it. So he'll be that. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. So Hagar, go back to Abram's camp. You're going to be fine. Your child will be a boy who will grow up to become a nation. But what else do we notice in those words that the Lord speaks to Hagar? The nation, the people that's going to come from Ishmael's line are going to be in conflict with other people from the get-go, not just for a time or a season, but as a defining characteristic of who they are as a people group. And as a people group, they're also gonna live, we were told, in the presence of all his brethren. So in the same geographical area, the same region as the line that will come from Abram's other child. If you don't know, Ishmael's line would produce the Arab people that live to this day. And if there's one region of the world where conflict has seemingly been never ending, it's the Middle East. The hatred between the Jews and the Arabs, the Arabs and the Persians, the Arabs and the Kurds, the Arabs and the Europeans, the the seemingly unsolvable political issues all go back to this, all go back to this. Abram, Sarai, Hagar, Ishmael, and the choice to disobey God because it seemed like an easy way out. After the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, I can't think of any other sin that has a greater fallout across history than what Abram and Sarai chose to do here. It's literally caused countless wars, millions of deaths, 
and the unsolvable uh, political issues we have today in the Middle East. Verse 13, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me. And in that you have a little hint that the angel of the Lord was indeed Jesus because Hagar seems to identify the one she's seen and interacted with as being God. Verse 14, therefore the well was called Bir Lahairoi. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. Bir Lahairoi just means well of the living one seeing me. Verse 15, so Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. So at this point, Abram and Sarai and Hagar likely all thought that Ishmael was the fulfillment of God's plan. After all, he's a boy and the Lord had told Hagar he would be the father of a whole nation of people. So for the time being, they start living as though this is all kind of worked out. I mean, it must have been awkward between Sarai and Hagar, but the point was that a son had been produced and they thought they had helped God out by taking the initiative to make God's plan happen. We're gonna find out in the next few chapters that they are very, very wrong because there's always a price to pay when we try and make God's plan happen on our timetable rather than waiting for his perfect timing. We notice, though, that when Hagar was running, Jesus tracked her down. Jesus went after her. And if you count the appearance of Melchizedek as the first appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, it's interesting that the second appearance has Jesus showing up to a Gentile. She's an Egyptian. She's a woman who is trying to run away from her problems by doing something illegal and unethical by kidnapping the child that technically belonged to Abram and Sarai. And in that situation, Jesus reveals himself to her. He makes himself known to her. And her response was to refer to him as, you are the God who sees. In other words, I wasn't looking for him, but he was looking for me. Even when she couldn't see the Lord, the Lord was seeking her. And Paul describes the reality of this situation in Romans 3 because it's the reality of our situation where he reminds us that the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. How did you and I end up in the family of God? He sought us. He revealed himself to us. We were in the same place Hagar was, trying to outrun our sin, but in reality, only running out into the desert, the place of inevitable death. But, but, the grace of God found us. The grace of God revealed itself to us, inviting us to respond. And if you're a believer and, and you try to run again, let me share this encouragement. The Lord will track you down again. He will track you down again because you're his kid. And so I just want to encourage you, the people that you're praying for who don't know the Lord, the people who seem not interested in spiritual things, so closed off, don't lose hope. Don't stop praying because the Bible says no one is seeking. You might say, well, they're not really interested. Well, the Bible says no one's seeking. Bibles, you might think like, well, they're really into 
sin. The Bible says no one's doing good. It's all by the grace of God. So don't lose hope that God can reveal himself to them and invite them to respond. And they may respond. And if you're running from the Lord or you know someone who is running, just know God is chasing them. God is tracking them down. But please notice as well how Hagar responded. You see, Jesus came to her in grace and love, but did you notice that Jesus also gave her some very difficult instructions, saying, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand? When people have truly had an encounter with the Lord, you'll be able to tell because they'll begin to live very, very differently, very differently. Pleasing the Lord becomes more important than what's easy or convenient or what feels good in the moment. You know, our world loves the gracious side. Our world loves to hear and we love to hear, Jesus chased her down when she was running from God. Hey, that's great. Jesus didn't condemn the woman caught in adultery. Hey, that's great. But we don't like the part where Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, now go and sin no more. We don't like the part where Jesus told Hagar, now go return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. I had a friend this week share with me a famous illustration from a well-known preacher. I'm not going to tell you who the preacher is because then maybe you'll think that somehow this is coming from me. But it goes like this. If I, if I walked in here today and I shared with all of you guys, you know the craziest thing happened to me on the way into church this evening. I was, uh, I was just crossing the street by my house when all of a sudden a Mack truck came flying down the road doing 60, plowed straight into me head on. Craziest thing ever. You would all be extremely puzzled because you'd be looking at me and you'd be thinking, um, then where are your injuries? Why aren't you dead? There's, there's no way that you were hit by a Mack truck at 60 kilometers an hour. Because you see, the issue is that we all intrinsically understand that when you get hit head on by a Mack truck, there's gonna be some serious observable evidence of that interaction, right? We all understand that. You're gonna be able to see the difference. Similarly, when someone has encountered Jesus, the God of the universe, been saved from death by Jesus, there's going to be unmistakable evidence of that interaction in their life. Not perfection, but evidence. And that's what we see in Hagar. She does what is difficult because she had a real encounter with the Lord. That's how we know it happened. The evidence of Jesus in our lives is a desire to obey Jesus. As we've said before, the phrase no Lord is an oxymoron because you can't call him Lord. You can't call him master and simultaneously refuse to do what he says. Then he's not your Lord. You can't call him Lord. It's not about perfection. I fail the Lord every single day. But it is about having a heart that longs to obey the Lord, a heart that desires to obey the Lord, a heart that desires to please the Lord. That's one of the marking traits of a believer. And if you're in the place today of waiting, let me just encourage you to keep the faith. God keeps his promises always. And he has the means to keep every promise that he makes. Don't settle for the wisdom of the world when you have access to the wisdom of the word, the wisdom of God. And finally, remember that waiting on the Lord is an action. 
It's an action. So be active about waiting on the Lord. Share with him in prayer. Seek him in his word. Sing out, praise him in that difficult valley that you may be in. Get yourself to church. Make space to listen and hear from the Lord. Be active about seeking the Lord. Do not be passive. Seeking the Lord is an action step. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the wisdom of your word, Lord. Thank you that we can be honest and freely confess that we do not possess the wisdom that is needed for everything that life throws at us, for most of what life throws at us. And so, Father, we ask for your wisdom knowing that in the book of James it says that if we lack it, we should ask and you'll give it to us freely. So, Lord, we just ask once again for your wisdom to be poured out on us, to be given to us. And then, Lord, we also ask that if there's anything that that we were meant to leave behind in our old life that we've brought with us, if there's anything that we've cut back on that you want us to cut out completely, would you just illuminate it by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you make it clear to us and then give us the desire to obey you and follow through on that? And then, Lord, if we're in a place of waiting for the fulfillment of a promise that you've made to us, a word that you've given us, Lord, would you help us to be active about waiting, to seek you in your word, in prayer, to praise you, to be active, God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.